With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. So in order to support our show, we need the help of some great advertisers. And we want to make sure those advertisers are ones you'll actually want to pay attention to and hear about. But we need to learn a little more about you to make that happen. And I would love to learn more about the audience. So go to PodSurvey, that's P-O-D-S-U-R-V-E-Y, PodSurvey.com slash James, and take a quick totally anonymous survey that will help us get to know you better. That way we can bring on advertisers and, and even content that you won't want to skip. So once you've completed the quick survey, you can enter for a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Terms and conditions apply. Again, that's podsurvey.com slash James, J-A-M-E-S. Thanks for your help. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. Ben Sheehan, who used to be one of the top writers at Funny or Die, he's written a book called WTF, Does the Constitution Say? And we talk about that, but the first thing I wanted to know from him is, is the world getting stupider when it comes to critical thinking? The nonstop dialogue on social media has taken a wrong turn, and just the general course of dialogue has declined. Everyone's gone from discussion to screaming. So... The first thing I do is I ask Ben about this. I also ask him, because he made so many great videos and funny videos at Funny or Die, I asked him, how do you make a video viral? And so in part one, we talk about that. And in part two, we talk more about what the F does the Constitution say? Because you know what? It says a lot of things I didn't even know. So here goes part one. Part two is available today as well. Enjoy. So Ben, so nice to meet you. I'm it's really. It's nice to meet you too. You you have such a interesting background. Also, I I love the funnier die stuff, and these Constitution books were great. Like Jay and I even just did a a few months ago. We did a podcast about the Constitution, and this fits perfectly. First, you were head of talent at Funnier Die. You wrote a lot of the video scripts, whatever. You got cast. You produced stuff. How does Funnier Die say so consistently funny? Like, it's like the funniest website out there. They have a really, really good ethos and track record of letting their employees um, run amok. And what I mean by that is there's very little creative oversight. There's this sort of this sort of mentality that honestly stems from Will Ferrell at the top. The idea is to try the weirdest thing and don't be afraid of failure and to just go for it. So I like that philosophy of try the weirdest thing. Like, thinking that way... Would you guys just sit around and say, well, what's the, like, would you look at the news and say, well, what's the weirdest thing we can do today? Yeah. I mean, part of that is trying to find the thing that would, you know, 
if it's something that you need to react really quickly to, if it's something topical that's not going to be relevant in a couple of days, you got to have something ready to go that you could knock out that night or the next morning. Um, if it's something a little bit, you know, more of a long lead, you have you have that freedom. But we always just tried to think, what is the thing that can be done here that can't be done somewhere else that isn't going to be on a late night show, that isn't going to be on um, some, you know, like that SNL is probably not going to do. What do we have the resources to make happen and and the freedom to do, you know, not being bound by, uh, you know, standards? Um, well, to, what's an example? Because SNL has can do a lot, for instance, if that's your metric. Sure. So, I mean, the, the, honestly, the, the Dennis Quaid example is a really good one, right? We, we basically filmed this entire video of Dennis Quaid having a full freakout on set, and he's responding to basically every all the swears he's saying, all the insults, everything, they make perfect sense on uh, on set when you see the video. So we recorded this this audio, we leaked it, there's no guarantee that that audio is going to go viral. It's going to get picked up. We figured that if we leaked it to enough sites and, and, and put it out there, and we actually used like Redditors with high scores and profiles to, to leak this audio so to make it even more legitimate that it's not some like brand new account leaking it. So we, we did all of that, and then it did get start to get picked up, and then we had that video ready to go to show that this actually was a prank. Um, so, you know, because it's not like Funny or Die doesn't air at 1130 on a Saturday or doesn't have like a nightly show, we can kind of ride out, you know, the freedom of when that actually hits, we can drop it at, at any time. You know, um, that reminds me, um, there was this, a video, it sounds similar when Judd Apatow was filming Knocked Up, he took, um, he, he, they, they pretended as if Michael Sarah was the or, original person cast in the Seth Rogen role. And uh, they had they showed him freaking out on set, throwing things, yelling at Judd Apatow until he's finally fired from Knocked Up. And it's almost like they tried to do something similar. I don't know if you remember that video. I do remember that video. I I think there's there there have been a few times where people try to do you know. It, apparently, I think the lesson here is that the media is very easy to fool and and manipulate into sharing uh, audio clips and presenting them as real before they have the full information. And well, like I'm always curious, like what's if you were to let's say start making funny TikTok videos. I'm just hypothetically asking, what would you? How would you personally think about it? Like what what would be your kind of a uh, process for coming up with a funny Instagram video or TikTok video, you know, using the same kind of e methodology or ethos that you had for funny or die. Well, it depends how much budget I have, but if I had an unlimited budget, I think the slow reveal of things getting weirder and more chaotic is really fun. I think someone who does a great job on TikTok is Jack Black, where he'll like, it'll be just sort of be in a normal situation. Then suddenly, you know, a fire will light next to him and he'll turn around and there's this like, you know, centaur attacking him. It's just like, you have a, you have a, I mean, now you have a more than a minute, I believe for a lot of accounts, but you have a, a one minute to both get someone's attention in the beginning and then slowly keep their attention. And so an escalating series of chaos, uh, of chaotic events, is a great way uh, to hold people's attention. And it's again, it goes back to the whole thing of you know the. Can I swear on this podcast? I don't yeah, know. yeah, of course. Yeah. It's like just it, it, we, we only called swear it the on what this podcast. We only swear. We called it the what the fuck machine. We literally had like a sketch drawing of a machine called the what the fuck machine that was on the walls at Funny or Die, and it, I mean it's just like silly contraption, but the whole idea is like, whatever your idea is, run it through that and get like the most weird, unique, strange thing, surprising thing out of it. And I think the one thing that was our guiding light there was always just try to surprise people. 
Um, the people like to share things for, for two reasons. Either they vehemently agree or disagree with it, so they want to share their opinion on something, or they can't believe something is happening. So the surprise factor is what we always tried to, to play into, something that was unexpected uh, that would kind of throw people because that seemed to have the, the best track record for generating buzz. You know, when you say the um, escalating the weirdness, it almost reminds me of uh, like the first few scenes of The Hangover where first, okay, like the Zach Galifianakis character seems a little weird. Uh, uh, the, the, the groom's father-in-law seems a little bit weird. So, okay, we're, 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 it's got the setting for like a comedic movie. And then they wake up and every, of course you're noticing that something's off and there's, there, there's a, then he goes to the bathroom, there's a tiger in the bathroom and it just gets weirder and weirder and weirder from there. And I thought The Hangover did it better than any other movie, that, that particular type of comedy. I, I think that's a perfect example. I think another example um, from the last couple of years is the movie Palm Springs. Uh, oh, I don't that know that one. Hulu. Oh, it's incredible. It's with um, uh, it's an An Andy Samberg and Lonely Island did it. And oh it my is, god, it, it's I gotta kind see of this. like it's kind of I I want to I don't want to mess up her name. I think the lead is Kristen Milioti, and it is this incredible. Um, I don't want to give anything away, but it is sort of like it, the movie is just going along. It's sort of a normal romantic comedy pace, and then a few minutes in something insane happens and it just it just grows from there and it is not at all what you expect. I, I love those movies where where something like, there's just a total out of left field turn and it just kind of makes you question everything that you that you just saw. Um, other movies that are like that, Audition, which is a Japanese horror movie, uh, Good Morning Vietnam, uh, you know, where it's just like there's a tone shift in the middle and it's like a totally different movie from that point on. It's a really, it's a really fun kind of a bait and switch. I, I, I'm going to have to check all these out. I've seen Good Morning Vietnam, but uh, not the other two. And you know, it's funny about Andy Samberg. Like I love all the Lonely Island stuff. And I feel like I never, I haven't seen, like the best movie I've seen him in was Hot Rod. I thought that was very funny, but still not like hangover level. So I'm looking forward to seeing Palm Springs. If that's uh I can't recommend it enough. It was my, I think it came out two years ago. It was my favorite movie of the year. Oh, wow. Okay. I have to see that. So Constitution. Oh my God, what the fuck does the Constitution actually say? A non-boring guide to how our democracy is supposed to work by you. And then you also have, of course, the companion book. What does the Constitution say? A kid's guide to how our democracy works. Why'd you write about this stuff? Uh, fear, um, uh, a, a deep uh, sense of uh, uh, social fabric falling apart. But I, I would say the more immediate reason is because when I was doing political work in 2018, um, I was educating people on the importance of midterm races, but not just not, not specifically races for Congress, races for for states. So like governor, secretary of state, attorney general. And so many people were coming up to me and asking me questions. And it was sort of like the situation where they'd like take me aside and do a one-on-one -on -one question because they didn't want to raise their hand because they didn't want to seem stupid in a crowd. And they would ask me, you know, why am I raising money for uh, the, you know, the secretary of state? Isn't he appointed or she appointed by the president? Why am I raising money for the attorney general? Isn't that... Uh, you know, isn't that Jeff Sessions? And I would have to explain to them that their state also has a secretary of the state and attorney general and that these are mostly elected positions and here's what they do. And this happened over and over that I started investigating civics. And that was sort of the aha moment where I realized that over the last 20 years, we've been cutting civics classes to the point where now only eight states require at least a year of civics or government at some point between kindergarten and 12th grade. So 
compared to previous generations, my generation, generations younger than me are getting way less civics education. And so that is sort of the, the reason that I think a lot of these questions are unfamiliar to people. And so I wanted to create a book that was like me talking to a friend over drinks, not sort of like a stuffy professor talking down to somebody and just basically explaining the, the foundations of how our country works through our founding documents. I think you're right. I think A, most people don't understand how, you know, what the constitution says, how government actually works. You know, there were, when I was a kid, there were these cartoons, how a bill is passed, but obviously everybody for, has forgotten 40 years later what that cartoon said. And I think people don't have a clue. Uh, and, and I'm going to ask some basic questions on this podcast here because I'm someone who I feel like I'm like into politics and I like reading about this stuff and I feel like I know a lot, but I was surprised by some things I read in the book. And I'm always surprised every time I take a look at the constitution that a, it has stuff I didn't realize and B it has stuff. I feel we're not obeying on a regular basis. So, but first off, my, my first basic question is what happened between 1776 and 1791? Like, I feel like everybody says, oh, the country began with the declaration of independence, but George Washington didn't start being president till like 1793. So what happened in those, what is it, 16 years? Were we just yeah. like at war for that long? And then well, there was the, the Articles <laughs> of Confederation, which disappeared. Like, they, like they, didn't we have a president of the Confederation? There's like a missing 16 years in our history. There's a, there, it, we do skip pretty immediately from uh, uh, the Declaration of Independence, which is just like, a, hey, here's an idea. Oh, basically, is what that is. It's not a legal document. It doesn't have any legal force. It's just like, a, hey, we're deciding to do this. Um, and then obviously the Revolutionary War uh, transpired over the next several uh, years, seven, seven years or so. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, it's funny to me, like we celebrate the declaration of independence. We don't actually celebrate like winning the war. Like if we were to celebrate, that would be, um, uh, uh, you know, several years later, I think we'd be celebrating September 3rd, uh, uh, in the early 1780s rather than, you know, 1776. So we, we, we start, we celebrate, you know, this thing that before we even actually accomplished the task of becoming independent. I, um, I don't even know if it was like the early 1780s. Like when did, when did we give back? Or when did we get back New York City from the, the British? Well, the war was officially over in, seven, I think it was September 3rd, 1783 was when they signed the Treaty of Paris. And that was like the official recognition, okay, you guys are independent. But we did start the Articles of Confederation earlier, two years earlier than that, I believe, 1781. And that lasted until the new constitution took effect um, in, in 1789. So we there is this weird gap of like, yeah, we have the declaration. We said the ideas that we want to use to found the government. Then we had several years of war. Um, we also had uh, our first try at the constitution that didn't work so well. And then we had this meeting to try to revise that, but it actually ended to the uh, ended up creating an entirely new document that is still in effect uh, uh, over 200 uh, uh, years later. So what happened then? So the, the war ends in 1783, but we don't have a president of the United States until 1793, you know, elections in 1792, and then we, and then George Washington took office in March of 1793. So what happened in those 10 years? What were, what were we up to? Was it just chaos? 
Well, he took office in 1780, uh, uh, March, or I think it was April or May. It was a little bit delayed in 1789. Um, so his second term started in 1793. But we had a little bit of chaos, but we had this very loose agreement between these, these colonies that were now states. And, and the Articles of Confederation was a very loose document that basically said, you know, we'll do the bare minimum to kind of, um, you know, protect the nation. Um, in order to change the Articles of Confederation, every state had to agree to a, uh, to a change, which never happens. And one of the things that led to this meeting that ended up creating a new constitution is something that happened in Massachusetts. And we may, we may know the term Shays Rebellion. I'm sure it's like name-checked in all our history classes and we kind of breeze over it. But the real impetus is a lot darker uh, than I think I realized before I started writing these, these books. So in Massachusetts, you know, under the state government in Massachusetts, citizens were being taxed even more heavily than they were under the British. So this war was fought. And that's know, kind of funny because in Massachusetts is where the, all the tax rebellion was. Right, exactly. And so it got to this point where, um, you know, in the, in the mid to uh, late 1780s, um, the citizens of Massachusetts were being taxed really, really heavily. And so there was a revolt and a number of um, Massachusetts residents took over a, a courthouse, um, I believe it was August of uh, 1786. And there were these series of protests, some of them violent, the most famous one, which was Shays' Rebellion in early 1787. And what happened was basically this group of citizens uh, had a standoff with a private army in Massachusetts, uh, uh, funded by a, a private donor. And what happened was you had an example of people who didn't want to pay a tax basically revolting and having success, um, you know, fighting the state government. And actually a number of those rebels ended up getting elected to the legislature. So, you know, to simplify this, you had a bunch of people who were at the bottom of the economic totem pole and they basically, you know, found a way to get quickly to the top and other states were really terrified because there wasn't a way for other states to come to like Massachusetts defense, they didn't have an obligation to help. And if that could happen in Massachusetts, that means that could happen somewhere else. Poor people could take over the, the state government. So that was what a lot of elites, quote unquote, feared. And so they had a, had a series of meetings to try to figure out how to stop Shays' Rebellion and others like it from happening in other states. And that's what led to this meeting of the Constitution. That's why they created a more central government. So it was actually more about sort of, you know, stopping class uprisings than we, than a lot of us give it credit for. So, so if there was no class uprising, we'd still be the Confederation. Like what were the articles of the Confederation? What, and who, was there a president of the Confederation? Was there an army? I mean, like, there was, was a, there was a, there was a Congress. It was pretty, it was pretty loose and, and decentralized. So what the constitution did was create like a, a, you know, an official, um, you know, you have the U S army, you have the Navy, you have the, the militia, which is, which changed over time, but we, we made a much more centralized uh, government than we had under the Articles of Confederation. States had obligations to the federal government. They had obligations to each other in terms of respecting each other's laws and obviously, um, you know, federal taxes and, and stuff like that and how we elect representatives and basically creating a much more strong relationship between the states while still giving states autonomy. Um, but that sort of federal relationship didn't really exist under the Articles. And and who was the who was like in charge of the Confederation? Who was the president of the United the United Confederations uh, or states then? Um, well, again, it was more. It was a there was a Congress uh, where there was a certain number of representatives, and you could serve for different amounts of time. So there wasn't as I, I think there was one 
person who was like the the executive. I don't know as much about that person as I probably should, but it was more that Congress, you know, the Congress under the Articles of Confederation was what dictated what happened and, and sort of was the most powerful branch of the government, which oh, is yeah. honestly how our current constitution is supposed to operate. Um, it's, it's funny, I'm, I'm looking it up. I have never heard of this guy. So here I feel like I'm knowledgeable in history, but I challenge people to to name who actually the first president of the United States was after the war ended. This guy's name was John Hansen. I've never heard of him. There you go. So there was one executive, but he he didn't have as much power as the the current uh, role of president. And he was, again, largely um, at the whim of the, the Congress under the Articles. And to be honest, that is very similar to the relationship that's supposed to exist between the president and our current Congress. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I I lived in over 100 or 200 different Airbnbs over a three-year period. And I loved it. I I became a really good guest of Airbnbs. And I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I, of course, the first thing I thought was I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests and having my own Airbnb or or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love, you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away. And I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three-story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty, who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Daylight savings time is starting up again. Okay, podcast is over. That's all you needed to know. But why do we have uh, daylight savings time? Answer, to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day that initial, when we initially start daylight savings. But if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you reach more of the right people. This is such a brilliant idea for a business and ZipRecruiter did it. So ZipRecruiter's smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. 
I've used ZipRecruiter, particularly as a potential employee, and I still, to this day, get messages every day. James Aldacher, would you like to apply to be VP of Entertainment at NBC or whatever? So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because of because a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. So spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is, as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like I'd rather do anything than go to the doctor or the dentist or the pharmacy or whatever. But now you don't have to waste your time if you use HIMS. HIMS, H-I-M-S, HIMS is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? Yes, I'm definitely going to use HIMS for now. Not on. that you need it. You're, you're young and healthy. James, I'm 35. You, you're getting there. You might, you might need it. Who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the HIMSS app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at hymns.com slash James. Could you imagine that? There's a whole section just with my name on it. Hymns.com slash James. That's how I how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs hymns. That's HIMS.com slash James for your personalized treatment options. Hymns.com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. Here's another question I have, which is, you know, and, and there are many articles in the Constitution which address this, but again, I think it's one of these things where people sort of know, but not really. What does the president of the United States actually do? Because in the Constitution, he doesn't really do a lot. No, he doesn't have that much power. In fact, the only thing he has the power to do, one of the very few things completely unchecked is to grant pardons and reprieves, so like lessen punishments or pardon uh, federal crimes. But there's really not a lot of independent autonomy that the president has free from, you know, oversight of, of Congress, or that's how it's supposed to, you know, supposed to work. The president is supposed to execute laws passed by Congress, like Full stop. That's that's the role of the office. You're also supposed to be the commander in chief of the the army and the the navy and the militia, which today is you know the U.S. National Guard and reserves. So you have this sort of active um, duty during wartime, and you are supposed to execute laws. You do have the power to veto laws, but Congress can override your veto with two thirds votes in the chamber. So you really are 
you know, and to, to, to sort of illustrate how this relationship was supposed to work, for the first several months of the Constitutional Convention, they had settled on the fact that Congress was going to pick the president. That was like until until the end of the convention when they changed it and created the the electoral college. The idea was well, you know, the the president, you know, similar to how it was the Congress that was powerful under the Articles, the president should be beholden to Congress, so Congress should pick the president. But then they were worried that the president might, you know, sort of um, it, it might affect the presidential veto, right? Because if the president is dependent on Congress and he just acts as like a rubber stamp for Congress, then Congress would, you know pick that person again. So that's why they created uh, this, this system with people who are not part of Congress and actually can't be part of Congress to, to pick the president. But it, it just underscores the whole point that Congress has always been the, the engine of our government. It's supposed to be the most powerful branch of our government. We don't have equal branches. This whole idea that we have three co-equal branches is a myth. I don't know where that, that just sort of like got started one day yeah. and then Yeah, and like then checks continued. and balances is on every single test from second grade to 12th grade. Uh, that that oh they're equal they check each other they balance each other but it's just totally not true and in well, fact we'll talk about the Supreme Court in a second like their role in the Constitution was also after the Constitution it wasn't in an amendment or anything well I think it's important to draw a distinction between checks and balances and equal branches of power because those are not the same thing you true. can have okay. you can have three branches of government that check each other in different ways but that doesn't mean they have equal power so just because the president has the ability to veto a law uh, a bill passed by Congress, that doesn't mean that the executive branch is equal in power because Congress can override that veto. Congress can impeach uh, the president. They can impeach um, uh, members of the Supreme Court. Those branches can't do the same to Congress. Like, it's very clear. Congress is Article One of the Constitution. The Constitution was originally written on four pieces of parchment. The first two were just about Congress. Article one is half of the Constitution, the original Constitution, the seven articles. So it is very clear that Congress was supposed to be the driver, but you can't have you know a, a, a driver of the government that is completely unchecked. So there are checks on Congress and the other branches, but that doesn't mean we have three co-equal branches of government. And and you know even the um, commander in chief of the army, the president is can't legally declare war on another country. He still needs Congress for that. And like I, I think the last legally declared war was World War II. That's correct. Like yeah. Vietnam, Korea, uh, uh, Afghanistan, the Iraqs, like all of this were, I don't know how you call them. Like what's the constitutional authority the president has there to, to move military around? Well, the problem is that you have a Congress throughout the 20th century that has slowly delegated a lot of its power to the executive branch. And I understand in part, if you were to give Congress the benefit of the doubt, which is not something I want to make the habit of doing, but if you were to do that, you would say, okay, well, you need to react really quickly. And if you're trying to get, you know, Congress to constantly vote on everything, you know, if we're in the middle of a war or a Great Depression and we have to wait for this legislative body to deliberate, it may not move as quick as we need it. So if Congress is delegating certain tasks um, you know, uh, under a law that they've that they've passed, then you know it's the executive branch can theoretically execute faster. So, so there is sort of that's the benefit of the the doubt. But the problem is that if you are continually ceding your power and oversight to um, a branch that's largely made up of unelected people, you're going to run into issues. And so, look at all the wars, like you just mentioned, you know, the Korean War, the Vietnam War, the Iraq War. These are all wars that were authorized by Congress, but Congress didn't use its constitutional power to declare war. And we have to get away from this weird habit of um, authorizing, uh, soft authorizing engagements without actually declaring them. It's, it's, a, it's a real area for concern. 
And and so okay, so the president basically can. I think that it also mentions he can throw parties. He can like entertain other world leaders. So that I think that's a constitutional right of the president. And I don't know why that was mentioned in the constitution. Maybe because he can charge it to the government or whatever. You need a face guy, you know? You need somebody to go around and, you know, shake hands and, and welcome people. And so, you know, that's sort of like the, uh, the, the, the representative for the country is, is the president. He, he could pardon people and he can, um, and then these other things can be overwritten by Congress, which is, you know, treaties and vetoes, and he can be impeached. I'm just trying to think what else, like why do we even need a president really? <laughs> um, well, we do for the purpose of you need to carry out federal laws and you need to execute the things that are passed by Congress. That's why uh, we have this gigantic executive branch because these laws are very long. They're, th they're often thousands of pages. We're talking about, you know, a, a trillion dollar plus budget every year. And so somebody needs to spend this money uh, and, and carry out laws. But, you know, it, it is true that the executive branch, in my opinion, and I, I think I'll, I, if I were to guess, the founders would probably agree, um, I think has grown to a size that they would be pretty um, concerned with. And, right. and you have this sort of balance of power shifting as from the Constitution. It's supposed to be Congress leading the government. And then you have the president to execute the laws. And then you have the courts to decide, you know, any disputes that arise. But even the power that we most associate with the Supreme Court today isn't actually in the Constitution. The ability to strike down laws if they think they're unconstitutional. The Supreme Court is the arbiter of whether or not a law is constitutional, um, you know, but they don't specifically have the power in the Constitution to strike down that law that came off of the court decision, uh, the famous Marbury versus Madison decision in 1803, where the Supreme Court just decided it had that power. And we've all been going along with it and just uh, taking their word for it for over 200 years. So. Um, there's a lot that I think is is almost directly at odds with our constitution, whereas today we think of our government, and I think a lot of us would say the power is centered with the president and the Supreme Court. If you're just basing it off of how often these branches of government are discussed in our media, how often um, we we adhere to them and, and sort of ascribe this power to them, but it's actually the complete opposite if you look at the constitution. Right, so... so what was the reason for the amendments? Why did they include at least those first 10 amendments, the Bill of Rights, in the articles for the Constitution? Why did they make them uh, amendments to the Constitution? So there was a lot of debate. You know, you need, at the time, you needed um, 13, or sorry, nine states to ratify the Constitution for it to take effect. So nine out of 13 states. And there were a lot of states that had issues with the Constitution. They were afraid that it was centralizing too much power. You know, they created this country um, in direct response to uh, a, a monarch, a, un a, a single person being able to pass down uh, their power through their bloodline to be uh, the person who can say what the law is. And they wanted to have the opposite of that. So they wanted to get away. They were very worried about a too centrally strong government. So what happened is James Madison, um, in exchange for the remaining states to get to nine uh, to ratify the Constitution and the states after that too, um, he promised to craft amendments that would protect individual freedoms from the federal government. So it was sort of done like, I promise I'm going to do this if you, uh, you know, if you guys help, you know, to, to ratify the Constitution and then also continue to vote for it as new states emerge. So we're talking about 10 amendments. It actually began as 19. 
and then they got whittled down to uh, 17 and then 12, and then 10 ended up getting ratified, and that became the, the Bill of Rights. So it was sort oh, of. Oh, I uh, didn't know that. Well, what were some of the missing nine? <laughs> well, what's funny is that there were um, uh, a number of. Uh, actually, one amendment that was part of the original Bill of Rights that that was not that didn't make it in. It was part of the two that were not ratified by the states. Actually, became the Twenty Seventh Amendment. So it was, and that's a whole story behind that. Um, but basically, it basically it says that Congress can't give itself a pay raise and until an election has transpired in between. So, like, you can't have Congress vote today to give themselves a pay raise. It takes effect tomorrow. There has to actually take effect uh, after the next congressional election. And that law, that, that amendment didn't exist until 1992, but it was part of the original Bill of Rights that was proposed by Congress to the states. That's so funny. So basically they could just vote themselves a pay raise and they would get it instantly. Uh, until 1992, that's correct. That's funny. Um, and what, do you know of any other that were in the missing nine? Like some rights that we don't have right now? Um, oh, oh, and then I have another question right after that about one of the rights. Sure, well, a couple, a couple of them, uh, the, the language of... One of the amend- some of the amendments that didn't get ratified ended up making it into the Fourteenth Amendment and also the uh, the Fifth Amendment around due process and and um, sort of equal protection of the laws. But another one is just like talking about the size of Congress, and this is moot today because it's like when the population gets to a certain size, we're going to have two hundred representatives in the House. When it gets to a certain you know size, they're going to represent more people. Um, but this all went haywire in 1929 because we decided to cap the number of representatives in the House at 435. And so we've been growing the population, obviously, ever since, but the House has not been keeping up with the population. So, you know, in the Constitution, originally it was 30,000 people for every representative in the House. Today, it's, uh, I think, 782,000 people for every representative in the house, which is more than twenty times uh, the original intent. So yeah, I guess there's a lot. Guess, there's a lot. It's a lot harder to represent the interests of seven hundred eighty-two thousand people um, uh, in a body of, of government than it is the interests of, of thirty thousand. Right. There would probably be there would probably be ten thousand congressmen if right now with the population. Of the well, United you'd States have over eleven thousand people in the house. That's correct. Yeah, that's that's funny. So okay, so Congress in the articles, Congress has the power to collect taxes. But in 1913, there was an amendment that we're going to collect taxes. So what, did they kind of foresee they were going to eventually have an amendment that would collect taxes? Or what happened with the taxes? So, yeah, I mean, we didn't have income tax until the, uh, the 16th Amendment, and, uh, which is what you're, you're referring to. Um, and we had basically people pay a tax per head. Um, when the Constitution was written, it was states paid their federal tax based on their population. So like a, you know, a uniform tax, like 40 bucks a person or whatever it is. And this is actually called a poll tax. We often associate poll taxes with voting, but a poll tax just means like a tax per head. And today we kind of do a similar thing. Like if you get a driver's license, you have to pay a fee to the, the government, like, you know, everyone has to pay the same fee. It doesn't matter how rich or poor you are or what your income is. Um, you know, a driver's license costs this amount of money or a passport fee or whatever it is. But this is how we used to pay taxes until we tied it to income. And then it allowed the Congress to collect a lot more money because before that, you had people who were paying very little uh, in, in tax and their wealth was growing astronomically. And so it was kind of a response to rein in the, uh, the growth uh, of the turn of the century. Well, that worked really well. So, <laughs> and it's uh, not like we see any echoes of that today, with uh, you know skyrocketing inequality. So it's clearly had an effect, right? 
what surprised you in the Constitution when you were writing this? There's a, there's a bunch of things that surprised me, but I'm curious, like, what did you learn? I would say the biggest, I would say two things. One is I was really surprised to find out that we don't have a right to vote in this country. We have voting rights protections, but those are not the same thing as an actual proactive right to vote. Uh, the 15th Amendment, uh, the 19th Amendment, and the 26th Amendment, which talk about voting rights protections for people based on their race, based on their sex, and based on their age, being 18 plus, that's not the same as a proactive grant for the right to vote. The right to vote has always been up to the states. And again, the reason being is that if you had said specifically who can and can't vote when the Constitution was written, some states would have had a problem with that. So like in you know, 1787, the population of the southern slaveholding states was relatively equal in population to the northern non-slaveholding states. The difference is that far fewer people in the South could vote because a lot of them were enslaved and they didn't have the ability to vote in their state. So even though you had equal numbers, um, you didn't have equal numbers of voters. And so that's why you ended up getting um, the three-fifths compromise and that is the basis for the electoral college in part. But it really surprised me that we don't fundamentally have a right to vote and that our voting rights are not enshrined in the Constitution, although certain protections are. Well, who can't vote? Well, I mean, prisoners, right? People who are yeah. people who are incarcerated in, in all states but two. So except for Maine and Vermont, there are at least some limitations on your ability to vote if you've, you know, committed a crime. In Maine and Vermont, even if you are sitting in prison, you can still vote. You can still fill out a ballot. You never lose your voting rights based on incarceration. Some states, you lose it when you're in prison. Some states, you, you, or you lose it when you're in prison and while you're on probation or parole. Like there are di Different states have their own laws about when you get your voting rights back. And some states never give them back. Um, you know, that was what Florida voted on in 2018, the, the constitutional amendment, state constitutional amendment to give voting rights back to uh, former felons. And it's gotten delayed in court. And then there was a state legislature passed a law saying, you know, you have to pay back all your fines before you get, um, you know, your, your right to vote back. And so it's just been this long, this long battle. But that's, that's I'd say, one very clear, obvious um, uh, uh, discrepancy between states on who can and can't vote. And, and I, I could see the point where basically if you abuse your rights of living in this country, say by committing a federal crime, maybe you shouldn't vote. I, I don't know. I could see both sides of that. On the other hand, if, you're, if you abuse your rights because you're a political dissident of some sort, then maybe you shouldn't lose the right to vote. So I could see both sides of allowing prisoners to vote or not allowing them to vote. But essentially, that we have... I, I would argue we don't have as many political prisoners as other countries and percentage-wise, and so maybe it's a good thing to, if you're in prison to not vote, but I don't know. Well, I would say that you have to look at what historically it, felony disenfranchisement has been used to do. And if you look at this very small wording in the 14th Amendment, we often think of 14th Amendment for like Section 1, right? Equal protection of uh, of the laws and birthright citizenship and stuff like that, but Section 2 talks about what happens if states don't let men who are 21 and over and, you know, have, having committed a crime, um, they don't let them vote, then they get penalized with less representatives in, in the House. But the very key word is or other crime. So it basically says you're not going to get penalized if you um, deny voting rights to men who are 21 and over, residents of the state, um, citizens, um, if they've committed a crime. 
So basically, getting somebody a felony in the Constitution, somebody with a felony disenfranchisement, someone who's committed a felony um, can be denied um, you know, the right to vote without repercussion. And so what happened is you started seeing states pass a lot of laws that seemed to be pretty questionable laws, things like uh, uh, loitering or uh, vagrancy laws or having to show proof of employment when asked if you couldn't produce it quick enough. You could be detained and then sent back to work on the plantation you just left a couple years earlier. And these were called the Black Codes. These were a series of laws after the Civil War ended um, that were used to disenfranchise people. And that tradition has unfortunately continued. I mean, look at uh, the discrepancy in sentencing in the in the 80s and 90s around uh, cocaine laws, crack cocaine versus powder cocaine. I mean, this is a long, ugly tradition of using laws uh, to disenfranchise certain groups of voters. So yeah, like didn't even in the 13th Amendment, you know, which you know, supposedly freed the slaves, wasn't there a carve out unless you were uh, in jail? Yeah, unless, unless you, you know, yeah, unless you, it could still be used as punishment for a crime. So if you committed a crime, you could be made to, you know, to, to work for no money, which we still do in several states. I mean, in, in most states, the wage, wages for, for labor are, are less than a dollar still. Uh, some states uh, don't even pay any money. I believe Texas pays not a, not a single a cent for, for prison labor. So, you know, you could pass a state law that's a questionable law, lock somebody up for breaking it and make them do, you know, unpaid labor for as long as their sentence is. I would argue that seems pretty similar to slavery and even similar to the the black codes that happened in the, the late 1860s. Right. And in fact, I think it was even for many decades, it was even called like neo-slavery, like a new form of slavery that was defined by the 13th Amendment. Why didn't anybody address this ever? <laughs> I, well, the sad thing is that... Because, like, black people were put in jail quite a bit in the late 1800s for, for like you said, for almost no reason, essentially putting them back into slavery. Right. Well, the, well the, 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 those, those were made illegal. Um, the, the federal government made those. Uh, the black codes were, you, you couldn't do that anymore. And so a lot of those laws were unconstitutional, were, were deemed illegal, um, illegal state laws, um, and that's part of what the, the 14th Amendment tried to try to do. Equal protection of, of the laws was meant to fight against things like the, the Black Codes and these sort of unfair laws when if you enforce them, it's very clearly disenfranchising a specific group of people, African-Americans at the time. So there definitely has been a, a response since then uh, and an opposition to such laws. But, you know, I think... You know, without oversimplifying it, racism is very good at hiding. It's very good at adapting, and it's very good at finding you know its its way into more granular administrative things where you have laws today around who can and can't vote or what kind of proof of ID you need to be able to vote or or how states um, allow people to register online or 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 vote by mail and stuff like that. They all the policies sound completely fair and neutral on their surface, but if you look at the groups of people that are affected, they are very disproportionately affecting people of color, low income people, um, and I think that just carries continues this very ugly tradition that was started, you know, in the in the wake of the Civil War. So in part two, we talk more about what the F does the Constitution say. If you like these episodes, please share them. Particularly the Constitution one is so important for how we understand the country of the U.S. and many other countries because they, the Constitution has become the boilerplate for the constitutions of many other countries as well. So uh, uh, 
enjoy. Stay tuned for part two. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.